How's everybody today? I'm going to be totally honest with you. I am scared to death right now. <laughs> right? I know I've, I've spoken here before a couple times, but every time it's, it's very nerve-wracking for me. So I appreciate in advance your grace and your patience with me if I lose my place or I say something stupid, but I know you're used to that because Mike <laughs> preaches all the time, so I shouldn't be too nervous about that. He told me I needed to have some light moments. So there's my, there's my light moment. Thank you guys for being here today. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And the topic today that I want to talk with you about is called living a life of urgency. And I know a lot of times we think of words and some of us might think of words differently than someone else. And so I wanted to start off with getting us to think of the word urgency in the same way across the board so we're all on the same page. So the definition of urgency and this is actually on your sheet. Definition of urgency is a matter of importance requiring swift action. Urgency comes from the Latin urgere, which means to press or drive, and it's related to our word urge. So if there's urgency to a situation, it's a pressing issue, and you have to respond quickly. So I put on Facebook uh, a week or so ago just asking people what are their thoughts when the word urgent comes to mind. And someone put on there urgent care. And I haven't even thought of that. That's one good thing about Facebook, right? You can get good ideas from people, not just always negative bad ideas. And so, you know, when we think of urgent care, we use urgent care when we need relief quickly in a timely manner, right? The doctor's office is already closed or we can't wait a couple days to get in to see our doctor if there's no appointments available, but we feel like what we're going through needs swift action. Um, I Googled images for <laughs> urgency and one thing that came up was bladder issues, <laughs> right? There may come a time where you need to seek a restroom urgently and if you don't make it there in a timely fashion, things could get really messy really quickly, right? We use the word urgent when we say things like, um, I need to speak with him urgently, or it's urgent that I see her. Things that are urgent are things that we consider to be time sensitive and needing swift action. So I just wanted to go through that. That way we're all in the same uh, place with what the word urgent means. So today I want us to apply this word urgent to our own lives, putting into perspective what really is urgent. So to help us to gain perspective with what really should be urgent, we're going to take a look at Ecclesiastes today. Now, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, and it's important to know a little bit about Solomon to understand the author. That way we can glean from this as much as we possibly can. So the scriptures tell us a lot about Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David and Bathsheba. And if you know about David and Bathsheba, uh, David kind of saw this girl across the way and was like, hey, she's pretty good looking, right? I want that lady right there. And he went and took her even though she was married to another man. And so she conceived. He tried to cover it up by sending her husband to war, hoping that he would get killed. Um, and then the, the baby that she was pregnant with, she lost and then later on, they got pregnant with Solomon. So Solomon was granted one wish from God. God said, I will give you anything that you want. He could have asked for anything. And Solomon asked for wisdom. So next to Jesus, 
Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He was a master of innumerable subjects. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs, over 1,000 songs, and three books of the Bible. His power was unparalleled. People would come and seek after him and seek after his wisdom as a leader. He oversaw the construction of God's temple, which took seven years to do that, and then his own palace, which took 13 years to fulfill that. He was a prodigal son. He had a time of living away from God and just doing his own thing, but then he gave his life to him. So Solomon was the wisest. He had times of indulging in the most pleasure. He had the most power, the most possessions. Then years after living with all of it, he writes for us in Ecclesiastes about how all of those things are really meaningless. So Solomon summed up his great life with that one word, meaningless. And it appears 37 or 38 times, depending on the interpretation that you use. Um, in the short 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, we see that word many times. So we're going to begin in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 in Ecclesiastes, and it starts like this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And of course, the teacher is Solomon. He's teaching us, and this is what he says. This is how he starts it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And to kind of summarize very quickly and very shortly for you, the first couple chapters of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going through and talking about life and all that he's done and how really it is all meaningless. He says wisdom is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. Folly is meaningless. Toil is meaningless. And so all of this is coming from the one who was granted wisdom from God. If he doesn't know what he's talking about, then no one else does. Then you continue in Ecclesiastes to read that known section that talks about there's a time for certain things, right? And some of the things that he mentions is there's a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time for peace, a time for war, a time to live, and a time to die. If we skip to Ecclesiastes 7, now he titles this section, Wisdom. So he's gone through all of the ways of how he's lived and how we live and how those things are meaningless. And what we seek after is meaningless. What we make priority is meaningless. Then he shares with us the wisdom that he's learned from all of that. In Ecclesiastes 7, he starts in verse 1. And he says, a good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So here's the wisdom that we're receiving from the wisest man besides Jesus that there ever was. Some of these things may seem kind of um, 
dark, maybe depressing, but this is the wisdom that we're getting from him. In verse one, he talks about how the person's name is better than a fine perfume. And when they talk about the person's name, they're talking about the character of the person. You know, how much time do we really spend focusing on our own character as opposed to focusing on everything else that we have going on? In verse one, he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And I don't think we have that outlook, do we? Like, to be honest, I don't, do you? No, right? When we hear that someone's pregnant and there's a birthing that's about to take place, we get all excited. There's these fun announcements on Facebook, all these gender reveal parties. We have a birthday every year to celebrate that day of birth. We go all out with that. But when it comes to celebrating death, that's not at all what we come close to doing. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than feasting. I don't know about you, but if I have a, an opportunity to either go to a house of mourning or a house of feasting, I'm going to choose feasting, right? That's more comfortable. It's more enjoyable. It, it allows me to have fun and to relax that way. But in their, in their culture, and I think still in some cultures today, they had time set aside for mourning. They had seven days where was just the first seven days was just a time to lament, a time to cry, a time to wail out and just get it all out. And then 23 more days were set aside just for the grieving process. So they had a total of 30 days where they're focusing on mourning. They're focusing on grieving. Solomon says, it's good to stay there and think about that instead of just going out and having fun might not be something that we consider fun, but he's saying it's good for us to do that. To us, that makes no sense, right? We don't want to stay focused on death. I know for uh, most funerals that I've been involved in or I've gone to, right, it's like you have a little bit of a viewing, you have your funeral, it's, you're done. It's, you don't really talk about it that much very mo- anymore because it's, it's uncomfortable. You don't know what to say to someone or how to comfort them, or sometimes you don't even want to talk about it because you don't want to deal with all the feelings and the emotions that it might rise up um, in you again. But he tells us why it's better to do this, right? All this so far, like, I'm reading it, and, like, it made no sense to me. I'm like, how is this possible? How is it better to focus on that? And he tells us in verse 2 why. Because he says, death is the destiny of every man, And the living should take this to heart. We need to understand and take in the fact that everyone has the same destiny. And why does he say take this to heart? Why does he use those words? Because the heart is the core where you make your decisions from. If we live in the reality that everyone has the same destiny, hopefully this will compel us to learn to live a life of urgency, keeping at the forefront that are in our focus that we really don't have forever. Solomon has a revelation that when someone dies, you realize what really matters. Solomon's thoughts paraphrased were, you know what, I might have more money than you, I might have more possessions than you, I have more power than you, I have pretty much more of everything than anyone, but in reality, we all have the same final destiny doesn't matter where we come from, what background we have, what race we are, how much money we have, how many cars we drive, what kind of cars we drive, we all in the end have the same destiny. 
So in his wisdom, Solomon is wanting us to focus on death so we can make decisions by running it through the filter of death. It will help us to focus on what's truly important and what is meaningless. No one likes to sit around and think about death, right? I'm, <laughs> I was talking to Mike last night. He's like, how are you feeling? I was like, really, really bad. I don't want to do this. He said, you want me to call Nate? I said, yes. No hesitation, yes. And he was completely silent. Do you really mean that? He said to me, <laughs> well, yeah, kind of I do. And he said, why? I'm like, because this is not a fun message, right? This is not something that we want to talk about and focus on. But, you know, when God tells you to do something, you do it, whether it's fun or not, right? So, you know, no one says, hey, why don't you come over this weekend? We'll grill out, we'll hang out with the kids, and we'll talk about death, right? That's not just something that's natural in our society that we like to do. As a society, we don't even like to converse with our family members on uh, what the arrangements should be once someone passes, whether for ourselves or for our family members. But Solomon is saying if we do take it to heart, it will help us to live a life that focuses on what really matters. Living a life of urgency is to see things that are truly important that will remain after we're gone and handling them with swift action because our time is really very limited. You know, if we really stop to think about it, how much of what we do is meaningless? You know, there's a, the battery on my phone has not been staying charged very well. So Mike went to, I don't I'm not techie, right? I'm up here asking Becky, does this mean the microphone is on, right? I am not a techie person at all. So uh, he was looking at my phone and, you know, you have the different options in your phone where you can see how much time is used for what. And he was like, well, I don't think it's your Facebook because on here it says, you know, you spent an hour on Facebook today. And to me, I was like, I spent an hour on Facebook, right? Just checking it here and there. A message pops up. You get on, you respond to someone. And I know that I'm not on there nearly as much as a lot of other people. But I was like, oh my gosh, there was an hour on Facebook today? I couldn't believe it. So if we start making decisions based on what's important and what will be everlasting, even in our death, how differently would we make our decisions on how we spend our time or even on, you know, how we spend our finances? You know, if we're looking at our decisions through that filter of death, it will probably change a lot of decisions that we make. How many of you guys know the Beatles song, Imagine? Two people? Thank you. Are you awake out there? All right. When I was in high school, you know, they let you vote on what your high school prom theme will be. And everyone was voting for this Imagine. Yeah, you know, this song, it's great. Um, let's have Imagine be the theme. And I was like, do you know the lyrics to that song? Right? Like, let's pretend there's no heaven. Let's pretend there's no hell. No, because there is. And everyone was like voting for this song. And I lost. Right? Great. That was my prom theme, Imagine. Wonderful. You know, and then the, the Cheryl Crow, I think it's Cheryl Crow. Scott, is it Cheryl Crow? All I want to do is have some fun. Right? All I want to do is have some fun. I got a feeling I'm not the only one, right? This is what we like to focus on because it's, it's fun. It's not uncomfortable to do those things. But in order to understand how important it is for us to live a life of urgency, we need to take the time to focus on death and keep it in remembrance that we don't have forever to do what it is that we are supposed to do here on earth. We're supposed to be obeying God's word and telling others about him. That is the most urgent thing that we are supposed to be doing. 
But God has a problem because he has us, right? (laughs) God's biggest problem is keeping his covenant people focused, keeping those of us that say, God, we are yours. You're the king of my heart. I'm I'm giving my life to you. I want to live for you. But we can't stay focused on that. But those people that have stayed focused on that, we look at them and we're like, wow, look at their life. Look at the choices that they made. Those people really stand out. So let's look at some examples from scripture of, of people that have lived a life of urgency and the outcomes that have come from that. Uh, we're going to start looking at Moses and Joshua. So Joshua was told that after Moses passes away, that he needs to be strong and very courageous because he's going to take over leading these people into the promised land. So God brings these two men together in Deuteronomy to give them instruction. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy 31, verse 14, and we're going to look at how these men respond to God in an urgent manner. Verse 14 starts, The Lord said to Moses, Now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent meeting, and I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent meeting. You notice it didn't say, oh, they went and did their laundry and then went to the tent. Oh, they went and gathered food and then went to the tent, right? They were doing it in a timely manner, in a swiftly manner. You know, I think a lot of times, even for myself, I'll know that I'm supposed to be somewhere doing something, right? Or like this uh, prayer meeting might be coming up or um, somewhere I'm supposed to be or even church sometimes on Sunday, and you wake up and you want to just brush it off. And you're like, oh, I'm too tired, or I'm too stressed. Oh, oh darn, something came up. Now I have an excuse not to go, right? And we just brush those things off. And our thought is, next time, I'll go next time. Oh, there's prayer next month. I'll go next time. And that's not living a life of urgency, right? If God is telling you to be somewhere and do something, we need to be doing it. Sometimes there might not be a next time. And we don't have that mind concept, right? We think we have forever. Okay, verse 15. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come in them. And in that day, they will ask, Have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. Great. Here you go, Joshua. This is what you get right? You're going to take over as leader, and you're going to have to deal with the people and all their ungodliness, right? I don't know. If I was Joshua, I might have been like, um, no thanks. I think I'm going to go do my own thing. Verse 19, now write, this, write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I had promised on oath to their ancestors, And when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. 
I know that they are dispo- what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. So Moses did exactly what he was asked, right? God said, write down this song and teach it to them. He did it right away. He did it in a timely manner, knowing that it was urgent, realizing that his final destiny was approaching. And we don't all get that quote-unquote luxury, right, of knowing when our final destiny is approaching. Verse 23, the Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised on oath, and I myself will be with you. After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord. So the Lord is telling Joshua, here's all you're going to get. Be strong and courageous. Be ready. Here it comes. And if we skip to Deuteronomy 34, verses 9 and 10, it says, Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded. So because Joshua was obedient to the Lord, he was strong and courageous. He had to be. Um, He still obeyed God in taking over and leading these people. So these people were led into the promised land and eventually were led back to God again because of the obedience of Moses and Joshua, right? They acted with a sense of urgency to do what God told them to do. And, you know, they knew that they really didn't have that much time to get this set up and get this going because God was generous and told Moses, hey, your time is almost up. We've got we've to get this set up for these people. I was debating back and forth whether to leave out verse 10, but it, it hit me so hard that I had to put it in. So verse 10 says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all these signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And we all know Moses wasn't perfect, right? Because no one is perfect. But when I read verse 10, I just thought, wow, what an honor to have something like that written about you. That's what I want to, well, I won't see it, but that's what I want to see, you know, when my final destiny approaches. I want people to write that about me. I want people to say that about me. And I hope that you feel the same way. I hope that you want your life to have meaning and to have purpose before your final destination. And not for the fame of it, but to be a part of being able to display God's mighty power to others, right? It wasn't just for Moses. It wasn't just for Joshua, but it was for all those people that God had placed under them to bring back to him. Of course, there were many other examples in the Bibles of those living a life of urgency. You know, we hear of Saul's conversion to Paul, and right after his eyesight was given back to him, he was often running, telling others about Jesus and of course, Jesus is the ultimate example of living a life of urgency. Um, but what I want us to really understand today is what living a life of urgency is. It's basically doing what God has asked us to do and do it when he asks us to do it. Not wasting time on meaningless things or giving excuses as to why we can't do them. And I'm not just talking about serving in church. It goes way beyond that. 
If you are out at the store and you see someone, God might say, hey, go start conversation with that person. Or that person needs prayer. Just go ask if you can pray for them. I mean, can you imagine if you were the one on the receiving end and you're at the store shopping and someone comes up to you and just says, you know what? I feel like God just wants me to tell you this. And it's exactly what you needed to hear that day. It's exactly what you needed to get through the day. It's confirmation on a decision that you're trying to make. Right? That has great impact on you. Wouldn't it be awesome to be the one to be a part of that with God, to have that great impact on someone else. You know, my mom is, is getting older, and um, she's happy about that because now she really gets to spend time with the Lord. She's not raising kids and, and doing this other stuff. And um, so now she's been talking to me more and more about really what is meaningless, really, now that I think about it. And she's telling me stories about how when she's out shopping and some woman approached her. She's been uh, having issues with her knee for a long time. She broke her knee, and the healing process has just been horrible. And some woman just gave her an encouraging word about her knee and, and how she some, saw someone else at the store, and she was able to pray for them, and the tears were flowing, and she was able to share Jesus with them. That's what it's supposed to be. We don't live that life of urgency because we're so bogged down with everything else that's going on And I'm right there with you. You know, Mike says all the time, first you preach to yourself. And it's so true. But we need to have this sense of living a life of urgency because we are not guaranteed our next breath. Yes, we say it. We hear it all the time. But that's not a thought intake for us. That's not a lifestyle for us. And we're at this time in the world and in our lives and our communities where it needs to be that way. People are dying, and they don't know Jesus. We live our lives like things are so important, and in the grand scheme of things, they're not. That wasn't even in my notes. You know, there there are some things that we do, and they're really good things. But sometimes when God tells you to do something else, that thing needs to become meaningless for you. Let me give you some examples from my own life because you guys are all great. You probably don't have any. Um, You know, we have three kids, and you guys know our kids are very active, and we've tried to allow them to have normal lives, um, you know, not letting the church world overtake their life or, or whatever so that they don't resent the church. But there are some times that I cannot go and be the supportive mother or Mike cannot go and be the supportive father. If God is telling us, Um, you can't go to your son's game because you need to go pray with this person. Guess what we do? We go pray with that person. Because even though it's a good thing to support our children, if God is telling us to do something else, supporting my child at that moment has to become meaningless. And that sounds really, really weird. And it took me a while to get to that point. But it's true. You know, if your kids are involved in sports and they play on the weekends and sometimes they play on Sundays... You know, you have to really ask God, God, what is it that you want me to do? Because I might be wanting to do a million different things that are good things. They're helping people. But if God says to do something else, then, then those good things, I need to see them as meaningless. When Mike asked me a couple of weeks ago if I wanted to speak today, you all know my first reaction. What was my first reaction? Exactly. No. And I rattled off a list of 20 things I'm already doing, all good things. Taking up collections for a kid at school that just lost her mom. 
um, helping on a committee at school to put together a family night, going away for the weekend to see my daughter play her very last volleyball tournament ever before she leaves for college, parent-teacher conference night, helping set up food for parent-teacher conference night, and the list goes on and on and on, right? And my excuse was, I'm not going to have the time that needs to be devoted to put into a message for Sunday. That wouldn't be good, right, for me to just kind of throw anything together and skim through. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, I just felt this in my gut. Oh, and the Lord was like, but do you know what I want you to do? I was like, oh, great. And Mike just said, okay, I just thought I'd ask. And right away I said, all right, give me a couple days to pray about it. And he just started busting out laughing because he already knew that that meant yes. Right? But, you know, we get caught up in things that are good things. But if God's telling you to do something else, those things need to be, be meaningless. Let me show you in my life how real this is. Just yesterday, right? I already had this written up. I'm just going through it yesterday, changing some things. And I knew I needed to call my mom. And anyone that knows my mom knows when you call my mom, Maya, we're on the phone for how long? Yeah. Okay. But I knew I needed to call her, right? She had tried to call the night before. I missed her call. And she's been going through a lot in her family, not just her own health. Um, Her sister had a stroke and is paralyzed on the left side. She just lost her dad a couple years ago. There's a lot of family drama because, you know, once the head passes, siblings go nuts, apparently. I don't know why, but they do. And so I called, and my uncle answered, and he's like, oh, I think she's still sleeping. Secretly, I'm like, yeah, right? Because I've got stuff to do for today. Today, getting ready for today is important. It's top priority. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. I think she's stirring around. And so she gets on the phone, and she's half tired. She's like, I won't keep you. I know you've got stuff to do. And she says that every time, which is cute because, you know, but it's my mom. I love her. And so we're just talking, and, um, you know, she's trying to help my aunt, and, and in the midst of helping my aunt, she hurts her back. So now she's dealing with that and everything else on top of it. And, and my aunt lives in Virginia, so she had a long drive to get there, and then come to find out, she gets there and finds out her mom that also lives there, her heart had stopped. And my aunt had to do CPR on her in the living, in, you know, in the house until the ambulance came. And then her heart stopped again. And so dealing with all that, I mean, right? It's crazy. So we're talking and we're getting ready to hang up. And of course, she says, just pray for me, you know, pray things, pray for your grandma, blah, 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 blah. Of course, my thought process is the sermon is important. I need to get off the phone. I have to get back to work. And God is saying to me, dummy, pray for her before you hang up. And I'm like, but if I pray for her, we might be on the phone for another hour right? And this is reality. This is real. But in that moment, I I did what I was supposed to do. I listened to God. Preparing for today became meaningless at that point because I needed to pray for my mother. And isn't it sad that I would even have that thought, right? To not take time to pray for my mom. That's horrible. I feel guilty about that. So we prayed and I, I prayed for her and her mom and her sister and the whole shebang. And, and she was crying and I was crying. And she said to me, She's like, thank you so much. No one has prayed over me since my father died. He was the last one to pray over me, and it's been like three years. So you never know 
the impact you have when you are obeying God, letting everything else become meaningless and focusing on what he wants you to do exactly when he wants you to do it. And you know, and it blesses not only other people, but it blesses yourself too, right? We can't have excuses. There are no excuses to obey God. So we're going to go ahead and show you this little video. It might help you uh, think of some excuses if you don't have any. <laughs> Okay, what if you got a bad case of the what-ifs? Like, what if they don't take you serious? What if it don't work? What if it's a bad time, a little inconvenient? What if every conversation after this is awkward? What if our kids don't get along? What if they're not receptive? I mean, I got to see these people again, and I don't mind picking up a kid or two after school. I mean, I was headed there anyway, but what if it's out of my way? What if I was saving my Saturday? The Lakers are playing. I'm not playing at all. Dead serious. Team is dead locked in a seven-game series. What if I just don't have time? You may have a lot of time on your hands. Me, I got a lot of hands on my time. I'm an introvert, overworked, underpaid, so tired I ain't got it made. Besides, deeds have never filled the soul's need. Quite the opposite, obvious. Go and take your youth groups to Mexico. Go ahead and let them feed the poor. Send them to hell with full stomachs. The gospel is supposed to be preached. You say that's a cop-out. I say I'll just shut my mouth, because if I speak, you'll have expectations. And what if I don't want you to? What if I think these lazies are getting what they deserved? What if I plainly just don't like them? Do I got to like them to love them? What if I don't love them? Sometimes I wish I was ignorant. Because then I wouldn't know I'd have an obligation to speak. Because if I speak, then my biggest fear might be revealed that I might be a fraud and I really don't believe. What if I don't believe? I say the gospel works. Yeah, the gospel rolls up its sleeves and works. And what if I don't? What if it don't? What if I'm just scared and I've convinced myself that intellectual assent is all that they need. But then again, who washes a plate, puts it in the same dirty water, and wonders why it doesn't stay clean? See, the gospel, hey, it works. Yeah, the gospel works, compels work. So we have to come to the realization that excuses are meaningless. If we do what God asks us to do, then the excuses don't matter. <clears throat> we have to glean from the wisdom of Solomon that it's better to go to a house of mourning and live in the realization that we all have the final destiny, but we just don't know when we're going to reach it. Andrew, if you want to get me that rope, that would be great. So I have this little illustration for you, and it's nothing over the top. 
It's actually an illustration that's been around for years and years and years. Some of you might have already have seen it. Um, it's an illustration of the rope. And so this rope represents like a timeline for us. The red part represents our time here on earth. And then the rest of the rope represents eternity. And so what we do is we put all of our time and energy and we focus just on this red part right here. Right? We work really, really hard all this time so that we can retire right here and have fun right here. Right? If we're blessed enough to make it that far. Not realizing that what we should be doing is whatever we're doing here in the red part should be in conjunction to what's going to be in eternity. Eternity for us and even even eternity for others. We get one chance at life on earth. And we make decisions not even knowing if we're going to have tomorrow. Right? Everyone lives for the red part. Not living for the millions of years that will come after. In Philippians 3.19, Paul says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And the phrase in there, their God is their belly, I thought, that is really weird. What in the world does that mean? So when he says that, when he says their God is their belly, it means it's what they hunger for, their God, not the God, but their God. Um, it's whatever they focus on or whatever they're putting their energy into. A couple weeks ago, when we had altar time up here. I just felt God tell me, dropped it in my spirit to pray for a hunger for him. So several people that I prayed for. So if a couple of you are in here and you know you weren't the only one I said it to, sorry, it wasn't just for you. Um, but God just had me pray for people that there would be a hunger for him in them, a hunger and a desire for him over and above everything else. You know, at night, I tell my kids, good night, I'll see you in the morning. Or when I'm dropping them off at school, you know, have a good day, I'll see you this afternoon, or I'll see you this evening. And really, that's my hope, right? I'm, and really, honestly, that's my plan. Oh, I'm going to see you later. I'm going to see you later. But after a couple weeks of studying this, and, you know, every time I'm saying goodbye to my kids, or goodbye to my husband, or goodbye to my family on the phone, I really have the thought process now and the realization that that might really be the last time. Have I done everything that I'm supposed to do? Time is not guaranteed, right? In James 4.14, it says, Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Right? Our life is a mist. Our life is a vapor. Our life is like when you're outside in the cold and your breath comes out and you see, see it just for a few seconds. That's what this red part is. Seeing death helps us to remember that we don't have forever to do whatever it is that God is asking us to do. You know, I, I have a list here of people that I was just going to read off to you that I know that have recently passed or have dealt with death. And I'm not even going to take the time to do that because it would take a while. But that was just like right off the top of my head, just from the last couple of years. You know, we don't have forever. Things need to be kept in perspective as to what really matters. And so here, you know, we always say we want to keep it practical. We want to give you something to do to help bring about this process in your life. So on your sheet, um, there are two things 
that talk about how to keep it practical. And these two things really go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. The first one is surrender to God's word. And a lot of times when we think of surrender, we think of it as a negative thing. Oh, I can't do it. I give up. I surrender. But we have to remember that when we're surrendering to God, that he brings a newness to your life. He brings fulfillment. He brings purpose. He brings a refreshing. So surrendering in a spiritual way is a lot different than what it looks like in the world. And the second one is let God be your father. Trust God to make your choices for you. Those of us that have been parents, we know that we try to encourage our children to make certain decisions and certain choices because we know what's going to be good for them. We know what's going to be good for them in the long run, not just in the moment. And God is the same way. If he's asking you to do something or telling you to do something, he sees the whole big picture and he knows how it's going to benefit in the long run. I might be struggling thinking, oh, I'm not there for my child at their game. But God knows in the long run, I needed to be at that prayer meeting because I needed what was spoken over me to continue with my life. Or I needed to be there to pray over someone else and help bring about healing in their body or healing spiritually or healing in, in, in another way. God sees the big picture. You know, there's uh, something on Facebook I read, and you guys have probably seen it too. You relax on a plane even though you don't know the pilot. You relax on a ship, even though you don't know the captain. You relax on the bus, even though you don't know the driver. Why don't you relax in life knowing that God is in control? Why is it so hard for us to do what God's telling us to do? Why do we fight it so much? We know God is good. We know he loves us. We know his plans are bigger than we could ever imagine and that he's mighty. Why do we fight him so much? I guess the same way as kids, we fought our parents, right? Same way. So all in all, in a nutshell, basically, this is what I want you to get today. Be obedient and do what God says to do. Allow him to focus you, because if we try to keep our own focus, it will be all over the place with whatever is going on in our lives. Um, The worship team wants to come up. You know, when I put out on Facebook, what do you think of when you hear the word urgent? I learned from a couple people that in the medical field, Urgency is here, and emergency is actually one step above that. So like emergency is, a, is more important. So my thought is, if we are living this life of urgency and taking care of what God tells us to take care of in a timely manner, an obedient manner, in a swiftly manner, if we're living in urgency, then we won't have to live in a state of emergency for ourselves and for others, right? When the When the states declare a state of emergency, that means really there's nothing else we can do, right? We can't fix it. There's nothing else we can do. When we dial 911, lives are at stake. It's an emergency. So if we're focused on living a life of urgency, it'll keep us out of that emergency level. So, Nick, I totally skipped a page, didn't I? (laughs) So real quick, um, talking about, you know, we talked about people in the Bible that live a life of urgency. Hopefully you've had some examples in your own life where you're able to see that. Um, One that we all know of is Mother Teresa, right? She really lived a life of urgency. I just want to read one of her quotes to you. I used to pray that God would feed the hungry or do this or that. 
but now I pray that he will guide me to do what I'm supposed to do. I used to pray for answers, but now I pray for strength. I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. And you know, in my own life, I can think of two people that really were good examples of living a life of urgency. One was my grandfather that passed away a couple years ago. Do you have a picture of my grandfather? There he is. So God told me the summer before he passed away to get to Virginia and see him. And I hadn't seen my grandfather since Maya was two. So he had never met my two other children. And if I would have allowed what was going on here in life to stop me from being obedient to God and going and seeing my grandfather, I wouldn't have been able to see him before he passed. So church, Sunday mornings, became meaningless at that point because I had to follow and obey God and do what he told me to do. And while I was there, it was such a blessing. You know, his health wasn't that great. He was on an oxygen machine, and his hearing was going. So at night, we would all be asleep, and he would be in the living room with the TV blasting because he couldn't hear it. And everyone was being kept awake, and I'm tossing and turning like, oh, my gosh, I got such a long drive. I got to get some sleep. You know, I would go out. I would sneak out and turn the TV down without him knowing, (laughs) and he would turn it right back up a little while later. But I got a chance to hear him praying and seeking the Lord in the midnight hours, knowing he didn't have a lot of time left, and he knew it. God blessed him with telling him that. What an example, right, just to hear him calling out to the Lord and just talking to God like we talk to each other. And then another example to me is my friend Julia that a lot of you know, Dan's wife and Nick and Taylor's mom. Julia lived with such a sense of urgency. Julia reached out and helped more people on her hospice bed than many of us do in one year of life. Julia was truly the only best friend I've ever had in my entire life. And after she passed away, I realized everyone felt that way, and I felt a little cheated. I thought she belonged all to me. (laughs) But I realized that's the way we all need to be living. We all need to live this life of urgency. That when God tells you to do something, you do it because you have no idea the impact. The impact for yourself, for your family, or for others. Even others you might not even know of. So I know this message wasn't like a, oh, hey, welcome to church. Let's go get them, you know. But I think it's something that we, as Christians, as believers, we need to have that mindset. We don't have forever. We don't have time to keep playing church and playing around anymore. You know, we can say today that Jesus is closer to coming back today than he was two years ago. And we can say the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And it's true. We don't know how much time we have left. But God tells you to do something, just do it. Stop fighting him on it. Right? It's something you put into practice. The more you do it, the easier and easier it becomes. You know, the posts say all the time, there's souls on the other side of your obedience, right? You never know. It's God's